Good morning. If you have your Bibles, take them out. We're going to continue our topic on Nehemiah, looking at his book and what he has done. We're in Nehemiah chapter 5. This morning, Pastor Scott and his family, who uh, is watching online, if you yell really loud and say hi, he might hear you. Pray they're all enjoying their vacation. Uh, and it gives uh, me an opportunity uh, to come before you this this morning with God's word. But before we get into that, if you would uh, bow your heads. Father, as we sang our praises to you this morning, I recognize that you are the victor, that you have already won, that you have already conquered, you have already defeated sin, you have been raised from the dead. You are alive and living. You are active and present. And that you gift us with your Holy Spirit that provides us with understanding and wisdom and knowledge. And Lord, you use him in our lives to convict us, to bring us back to a right relationship with you when we falter. Father, the Spirit prays on our behalf when we don't know what to pray for. We take comfort in knowing who you are, who you have revealed yourself to be through your word, your promises that are contained within the fact that you love us with a steadfast love and an everlasting love, that you call us your children. We have the rights and privileges of as heirs, as sons, because of Christ's work. We are here this morning to praise your name, to worship you, to glorify you. Pray that we would have ears to hear this morning, that our eyes would be open to the truths of your word, Father, that your spirit will give understanding and help apply it to our lives. That we would be, as our name says, a light in this city. To give you glory and honor and praise. to be selfless and exemplify the characteristics of Christ in our lives. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning as we we get into Nehemiah 5, just a little review of what we have been talking about. Some of you have been here for all of uh, the first four chapters, some of you may not have been here for that, and I apologize, I have been late in getting them online, I am behind, and so you, you have not been here, you have not had a chance to catch up at all. And so, just a quick overview of what is happening in Nehemiah chapter 1. We talked about how Nehemiah inquired about Jerusalem, he is the cupbearer of King Artaxerxes, And he is saddened to hear that the walls are still destroyed. His homeland is still unsecure. And so he prays to the Lord a prayer of confession, a prayer of hope, 
that the Lord would provide for him to be able to go. And so in Nehemiah 2, we see a preparation and planning period for him where when the king sees his countenance that is sad, asks him, and Nehemiah prays and speaks. And the Lord has been working and moving. And so King Artaxerxes sends him out. He's able to go and he surveys the work that is to be taken place in Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. In Nehemiah 3, the work is commenced. The physical structure of rebuilding began. But we, as we talked about, his work is not just for the rebuilding of physical walls, but it's also for the rebuilding of the people. In Nehemiah 4, you have the opposition from the outside. We talked about discouragement last week. Pastor Scott talked about how we can live in the midst of discouragement, that it's a, it's a choice for us of how we view our circumstances, of our trust in God to see that he will bring about good from the things that we experience. And he said all of those things are pushing against the kingdom of God. And even as we mentioned, God is the victor. If he said if God is for us, who can be against us? The battle has already been won. We just need to show up and be present and be obedient. And so we get to Nehemiah chapter 5 this morning. And as many of you know, sometimes you get attacked from the outside, right? You had uh, Sumerians, Sanballat, you had Tobias, the Ammonites, you had uh, Geshem, the Arab who was attacking and being just downright rude and mean to Nehemiah and the Israelites because they did not want to see the walls rebuilt. They didn't want it to affect their kingdoms. But as external battles rage on, internal things come out. And so this morning we're going to be looking at oppression from within. And I've titled this sermon this morning, Walking in the Fear of Our God. It's a statement you'll hear later that Nehemiah speaks to the, the rulers and those that are well off in the city of Jerusalem. And I want to preface, before we read the word, what we mean when we say the fear of God. Because Nehemiah gives us a glimpse of what a man devoted to Christ can accomplish by walking in that fear. The Holman Treasury of Key Bible Words defines the fear of God this way. And many of you know, may be familiar with this well-known passage in Proverbs 9, verse 10, but it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, knowledge. Correct. It's probably the best-known Bible verse dealing with fearing the Lord, and fear is not something people normally desire to have. It is an emotion we would like to do without. My wife can attest to that as this morning in the bathroom, and she said yesterday I saw this huge salamander outside. It was now inside in our bathroom this morning. <laughs> Fear is not something we would like to have in our lives. It's something we can do without. Yet the book of Proverbs says that fear of the Lord is a good thing. It comes from the Hebrew word yirah. It may mean fear, reverence, piety 
comes from the root verb yair, to fear, to be afraid. But it means this. The word indicates a genuine fear and respect for the Lord. But it is a fear that results in spiritual, moral, and ethical health and wealth before both God and people. Read that one more time. It's fear that results in spiritual, moral, and ethical health and wealth before God and before man. Nehemiah represents that fear of the Lord and how he has dealt with the things going on, keeping the vision before the people, encouraging them. The battle is the Lord's. He has already won. He will provide for us. He will bring us through this. And it's a reminder to the Israelites who are discouraged, who have been knocked down, who have just come back not that long ago from captivity. Pastor Scott went through some of the history, and so here's just a brief overview again. You have the Assyrian captivity of the Israelites. That happened in 724 B.C. When Nehemiah arrives on the scene, it's around 445 B.C. So in a 300-year period, 300 years ago, the Assyrians came in, they conquered them. The Assyrians were conquered by the Babylonians, which was a province of Assyria. They had conquered them, but the Babylonians revolted. King Nebuchadnezzar rose up, and we see in 597, he attacked Jerusalem for the first time. In 586 B.C., because the Israelites didn't listen to the God, he attacked again, and that's when we see the destruction of the temple of God in 586. In 539, the Persians defeated the Babylonians. If you remember, King Artaxerxes is a Persian king. That's who Nehemiah works for. And it was decreed in 538, almost a hundred years from Nehemiah's time, that the Jews could return from exile. They can return to their homeland. So over that course of time, Jews have been coming back to their homeland, those that were able to. And they came back to a destroyed temple. They came back to destroyed walls. And God provided for them in various ways. In 516, the temple was rebuilt by Zerubbabel. He was one of the governors of Jerusalem. And now God has sent Nehemiah to help in rebuilding the walls. If you have your Bibles, you can open up this morning, Nehemiah 5. says, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many. So let us get grain, that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our houses, to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our field, in our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. 
in this first section of Nehemiah 5, we see the first glimpse of not an external force against them. The Israelites had come together. They unified to help build a wall, each doing his own part in front of their houses, taking part in that, coming to each other's aids as some are holding weapons, some are continuing to build when they hear the sound of the ram's horn to come to the aid of others. And yet now we hear this great cry from within the people that says against their own brothers to Nehemiah, this is what is happening to us. As we look at this, I'm going to point out just some of the things of what a good leader does. And in this section, a good leader listens. He listens to those who are under his command, who he has been tasked with leading and to lead well. So a good leader listens. He has listened to what they have said. One of the commentators that I read, I, I read uh, Warren Wearsby, who's <clears throat> Is an American Christian clergyman uh, who actually just died uh, a couple years ago in 2019. Um, but one of his commentaries, and I also look a lot at Matthew Henry's commentary, as, um, at least in my resources, those are two that are very detailed in some of their, their notes. Um, and he had to say this. He said, in the midst of a great work for a great God, a great cry was heard among the Jews. They weren't crying out against the Samaritans, the Ammonites, or the Arabs, but against their own people because Jew was exploiting Jew. The economic situation had become so desperate that even the wives, who usually kept silent, were joining in the protest of what was happening. These are desperate people in desperate times crying out to Nehemiah crying out to the Lord for help. The four complaints we see, there are those who have large families there in, in verse 2. With our sons and our daughters, we are many. They have large families to feed. We need to go and get grain to sustain us. In the land, there was a famine. Grain was not being produced well, and we're going to see as that has affected others as well. They say, we have large families. We're not able to feed our own children. And we're also working on the wall. We're doing all of those things. So some of their normal tasks are being neglected in pursuit of this task that Nehemiah has given them. And we'll see Nehemiah is will remind them that God is good. The next complaint, there are those who own land that is not producing. It's not producing what it is, and so what they have done is, in order for them to get grain, it says, we have mortgaged our properties. Just like you would mortgage a property today to take out the equity that is in the house to use towards whatever you need to use for they essentially have done the same thing. They've mortgaged their properties in order to get money so that they can go and buy grain where it is available to provide for their families. 
And what happens when you can't pay the mortgage? Yeah, same as today. Your land ceases to be yours. So they are struggling. Then it says there are those who have borrowed money for the king's tax in order to keep what they have. They own land, but much like most governments, what they have is tax. So land, property, real estate, just like today, except in today's economy, the taxes that we pay go to help us. It goes to help our community. It goes towards policemen. It goes towards firemen. It goes towards our schools. It goes towards roads and, and other things. In their day and age, taxes didn't go towards those different things. It went to the king for his own benefit. It went towards the empire to expand. And when you have these empires that are expanding, it takes a lot of money. An awful lot of money. The Bible Reader's Companion said this about taxes. The Persian king collected some 20 million gold derricks, which is a Persian coin, annually in taxes. Payment was demanded in gold or silver coin, which was then melted down and stored as ingots. And when Alexander the Great took Susa, we read about Nehemiah in Susa with King Artaxerxes. When Alexander the Great took Susa, where Nehemiah had served, he found 270 tons of gold and 1,200 tons of silver. That's a lot of money. The policy stripped the kingdom of coinage. It created inflation, which is what the Jews are dealing with and was in part responsible for the serious economic distress that we see them in as they, even though they were allowed back in their homeland, they are still subject to the Persians. And so you have those three complaints. And then the fourth is this in verse 5. There are those who are unable to pay back their loans, unable to pay back money that is borrowed. One of the ways in the ancient East of helping to pay back those loans when you physically did not have it, you sold your children or yourself into debt slavery. So you would essentially say, I will work to pay off my debt. So they're crying out to Nehemiah. We, it is not in our power to help it. We, have, we don't have any other recourse. Our land isn't ours anymore. Other men own it. Our children aren't even ours anymore. Our daughters are already enslaved, whether that's they married them off, to other men, were sold into slavery. Their sons sold into slavery. These are desperate people in desperate times. It says both drought conditions, high taxes, placed a great strain on agriculture. But it was the greed of the wealthy who loaned desperate families money at high interest and then foreclosed on their property. 
was the main cause of the dire straits they were in. Same as today, there's many reasons for poverty, whether misfortune, natural disaster, different things going on, but the root cause for most poverty is still greed. Even as we prayed this morning for Hong Kong in China and as we pray for other nations of the world and we see, hey, this is one of the richest nations in this area and yet we see it doesn't trickle down to those that are in most need. It goes elsewhere. And it's the same principle, greed. And that sounds, all that sounds terrible. All that sounds crazy to have to do those things, to put yourself in that situation to know that you're, you're that desperate, you're that in dire straits. We're doing, we're helping Nehemiah, we're building this wall, but look, this is the situation that we are in. This is a great outcry. And I want to point out that in our minds, slavery has obviously this, this negative connotation, and it should, but slavery in the Old Testament is slightly different than if we bring to our mind of what was happening here in the States. As I mentioned, this is, this is debt slavery. This is they willingly are not, well, they're willingly placing themselves, but it's because of their circumstances that they're doing this. But it's not permanent chattel slavery or traditional slavery, which is what we've seen where it's the trading of goods, as people as a commodity. Um, however, some of what is in here might suggest those who are engaged in this type of thing aren't living by God's word. See, this is Jew against Jew. Israelite against Israelite. It's not the Israelites versus other peoples or other peoples enslaving Israelites. These are their own people enslaving each other for their own benefit of those that are greed. When you have economic situations, even like the one that we we are in, you will see people take advantage of the situation to further benefit themselves rather than be a benefit to others. We see a lot of selfishness instead of selflessness. And in the Bible, God had spoken about these things even way back during Moses' time when he's giving the laws and he's talking to people. God has called out his people, the Israelites, to be different than the rest of the world. And so some of the ways in which God would show that they were different, he would have these things. So the Mosaic lie provided for these types of transactions to be made, but it also provided grace and mercy to be extended through the sabbatical year and the year of Jubilee. And so Erdman's Bible Dictionary explains it this way, for the sabbatical year and the year of Jubilee. In God's word, we can go back, whether it's in Leviticus, whether it's in Deuteronomy, whether it's in Exodus, you can go back and you can look at God's word, and he has told them this. He says the last of a seven-year cycle. So when he talks about that slavery and different things, he says you will serve six years, and on the seventh year you shall be set free. The last of a seven-year cycle in which, according to the law of Moses, the land was to be left fallow. So this includes also for land replenishment. 
but also for people who are starving. So in the seventh year, land was to be left fallow. The people to eat the stored produce of the previous year as a reminder that the Lord was in essence owned by the Lord and thus given by him. God owns everything. In his word, he says in that sixth year, I will give you an increase in order to help you through that seventh year. But what grew without being tended was not to be gathered in by the landowners. So their crops would still produce something, even though they're not working it. But that was for those who needed it. It was to be left so that all classes of people, domesticated animals, even wild animals, could have it for food. Debts owed by fellow Israelites were to be canceled. It is possible that slaves were also to be freed with the arrival of the sabbatical year, though the seventh year for the freeing of slaves appears to have been measured from the beginning of each of the slaves' period of servitude. So this is a calendar. So they have these dates. So the sabbatical year would happen every seven years from when they started. So it would be a, a thing. But if you were went into debt slavery in the sixth year, you're not serving one year and getting out. It's you'll serve your six years from your time of service, the seventh year be set free. But not only that, they also had the year of Jubilee. And that was after seven cycles of the sabbatical year. So after 49 years, seven cycles of seven years, the 50th year, was called the year of Jubilee, which, like the sabbatical year, represented an extension of the Sabbath principle. Just like the Lord worked on six days and rested on the seventh, he's doing the same principle for other things in longer periods. Work land for six years, the seventh let it rest. Serve six years of debt slavery, on the seventh you're free. After six years of your debt, if you have not been able to pay it off, it is forgiven. And this was all designed by God to, to help his people. He owned everything. He owned the land. He's the one that apportioned everything in the land that they went to, the land that was flowing of milk and honey that they were looking forward to, that they have come back to. He apportioned it to this group and this group and this group of the tribes of Israel. And that was not to be, it's uh, one of the commentaries said, in perpetuity, meaning forever. But God had said, no, it goes back to the original owners. I've apportioned this land for them. On hard times, yes, you can mortgage, you can, it will be somebody else, but I will provide that it, you don't lose this. It stays in the family line. However, we see Israel doesn't always listen to God's word, right? That's what found them in the circumstances that they are in. Nehemiah is probably aware of that as well. Because he... He says this, if you turn back to the word of God in verse 6, he says, I was angry when I heard their outcry. In these words, I was very angry 
And I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself. I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, verse 8, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you... Even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent. They could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? To prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grade. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. When you read, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. It brings to my mind Christ in the temple going before the money changers and the lenders and seeing how they were misusing the temple of the Lord for their own benefit, charging exorbitant prices for things that they shouldn't have, things that people were coming to present before their Lord and God as sacrifice, they're making money off this, and Jesus goes in in righteous anger and turns the tables over. Here we see Nehemiah with righteous anger. A good leader responds with justice and equity when he sees offense. And there is offense. In this passage is rebuke and recompense. It also reminds me of the passage in James of how we are to live our lives when it says he took counsel. Sometimes as a human being, we hear things, we get anger, it stirs up within us. And what? You just want to yell. You want to shout. And it's impulse. It's might not be the right way of approaching the situation, of handling the situation. James 1 says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So even though this is a righteous anger, he doesn't immediately respond, but he takes counsel, he steps back, he prays before God. He looks at the situation, looks at what God has done and how to move forward. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And so he goes to them alone after hearing this. So the assembly has come before him. He hears the great outcry. He backs away from the situation for a time of thinking and contemplation. Then he he responds by acting. And so he goes to the officials. He goes to the nobles and he says, you are exacting interest each from his brother. He tells them, look, this is not right. What you are doing is not right. As I said, the Word of God provides for 
the Israelites. And so in Leviticus 25, it says, If your brother becomes poor, cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner. He shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God, that your brother may live beside you. You shall lend him your money with, without interest, and you will give him food without profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. Look, I was the one that redeemed you, God says. I was the one who brought you out of your captivity. I was the one who has provided everything that you have, everything that you own. And you're taking advantage of your brothers. This is not should not be the case. Leviticus tells them they should not be doing this. Exodus 22, 25, If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like the money lender. You shall not exact interest from him. Deuteronomy 23, 19 and 20. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You can charge interest to the foreigner. But you may not charge your brother interest that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. They're in that land now. This is far removed from when God was giving Moses the laws, but this is passed down from generation to generation. Even with the exile, they know God's word. But because of the human condition, the human sin nature within us, they are greedy and are taking advantage of the people, and Nehemiah reminds them of this. And so he says he gathered the assembly Against them. I had a great assembly against them. Public sin, where it's out in front of everybody. They've been doing this in front of the people that surround them, that are aware of it, even as he Nehemiah brings the charge against them. In verse 9, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Public sin requires public rebuke. And so he brings them before the general assembly of people that are gathered together. And he made those appeals to them. He appealed to their love by reminding them that they were robbing their fellow Jews. These are your brothers. These are your own people. God has called you to be different. Why are you doing this? He appealed to them based on God's word. What we just looked at. Wearsby says the Jewish nation went into Babylonian captivity and agricultural people, but some of them came out a mercantile people. They learned how to use money to make money. And we see this being practiced among them. There is certainly nothing wrong with lending money, providing you don't violate God's word and exploit those who are helpless. 
That's not being Christ-like. That's not being an example to the nations. He appealed to them based on God's redemptive purposes for them. God was the one that redeemed them out of Israel. He is the one that is still redeeming them. Sorry, out of Egypt. They went to the land he had given them. He redeemed them out of the hand of the Egyptians. But they didn't listen, and so they went back into captivity. But he again and again provides for them. He appealed to their witness to the Gentile nations. He appealed to his own personal practice. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. However, Nehemiah wasn't exacting interest from them. He wasn't doing those things. Nehemiah was not a hypocrite. Matthew Henry said this, and I wanted to read it just because of it struck me, because this applies to us too. As I mentioned about talking about, we're talking about the Israelites. They're God's holy people. They're meant to be a symbol to the nations of a better way of a good God that provides, that blesses. We are a people who are called out by God to be a blessing to the world in which we win. We're called to be in the world, but not of the world. Says all Matthew Henry said, All that profess religion should be very careful that they do nothing to expose themselves to the reproach of those that are without, lest religion be wounded through their sides. Nothing exposes religion more to the reproach of its enemies than the worldliness and hard-heartedness of the professors of it. Essentially what he says, if you are no different than the world, yet you claim Christianity before the world and act just as the world, what would cause them to want to be like you? It should be a sobering, sobering judgment for us. It's a sobering judgment for the nobles, for the officials. They stood silent before Nehemiah. We, what, how do you respond to that? They should be feeling the weight of their guilt and their shame as they have been rebuked by their leader. And they were silent and could not find a word to say. They were not walking in the fear of God. So not only did Nehemiah rebuke them, but he also talks about a recompense for their actions. Reparations for what they had done. And so verse 11 Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. It was almost as if he's saying, look, you have not followed God's command, and it might not be a sabbatical year, and it might not be the year of Jubilee, but this day now return what is rightfully theirs. 
Choose now to follow God in His commands. Choose this day to be obedient. The interest that they would be exacting from them is a lot. It is one hundredth of uh, whenever I find it in my notes. It ends up coming to 1% a month, 12% annually. That's a lot for them to be exacting. He says, not only are you returning everything that is already should have been returned to them, that is theirs, that you have wronged, but I want you, all the money you've made, I want you to give it to them. These are the nobles and officials. They're already, they're already men who are well off. They are, they're greedy. They're not being obedient. They're not helping their fellow brothers who have fallen on the hard times, who have fallen because of the famine, who have fallen because they've mortgaged their lands, they've borrowed money, they've sold their children. So he says, you're going to bless them with not just giving back what is theirs, but giving back what you made off of them. A good leader makes his judgments with justice and equity. Verse 12, this is their response to Nehemiah. It says, then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. It's refreshing to hear, right? Somebody is rebuked, and instead of immediately, well, no, this is, this is why I did this. This is why this is happening. Look, this is their fault that they found themselves in this situation, and I was just doing what was best? No, there was nothing they can say. There was no argument they can present. There was nothing. They were silent. They were shameful. They were guilty. And recognizing that and surrendering themselves, they answer in the affirmative, you are correct. We need to do this. Nehemiah, seeing their heart, seeing what has been done, goes further and says, so I called the priests. Right? I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. Has anybody ever told you something and then went back on their word? It's probably happened to all of us. Israelites included, many times they had said, look, we are going to do this, and yet they didn't. This is not the first time that we see this happening to the Israelites, where they went back against their word. In Jeremiah, in chapter 34, it says this. Now this is when King Nebuchadnezzar is is before the Israelites, so this is in their past. It came before Nehemiah. But it says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people in Jerusalem to make a proclamation of liberty to them, that everyone should set free his Hebrew slaves, male and female, 
so that no one should enslave a Jew, his brother. And they obeyed. All the officials, all the people who had entered into the covenant that everyone would set free his slave, male or female, so that they would not be enslaved again. They obeyed and set them free. Hey, they listened. But wait. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Sorry, wait. They, yeah, and brought them into subjection of slaves. So they obeyed and set them free. But afterward, verse 11, they did what they said they would do before the Lord. But then they thought to themselves, well, that was dumb. Why did we do that? They turned around, took back the male and female slave they had set free and brought them into subjection as slaves once again. Directly defying God. So the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I made a covenant with your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. Here again we see the Lord speaking through his prophet, coming back to the fact that this is what I have done for you. Just as Nehemiah presented that to the nobles and officials. At the end of seven years, each of you must set free the fellow Hebrew who has been sold to you, who has served you six years. You must set free from your service, but your fathers did not listen to me or incline their ears to me. You recently repented and did what was right in my eyes by proclaiming liberty, each to his neighbor, and you made a covenant before me in the house that is called by my name. But then you turned around profaned my name when each of you took back the male and female slaves whom you had set free according to their desire and you brought them into subjection to be your slaves. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty, every one to his brother and to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim to you liberty to the sword, to pestilence, to famine, declares the Lord. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. When you don't follow Christ, when you don't follow what God has said, judgment reigns. They were judged for their actions. Nehemiah made sure that they were going to take their words seriously. He brings the priests in. He makes them take an oath before them. In Numbers 30, it says, This is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. God takes it seriously, as we saw in Jeremiah, with King Zedekiah not listening, falling back. The Babylonians conquered them. Here's another chance for Israel to do what is right in the eyes of God. And so, I called the priests, made them swear as they had promised. They did that. They swore the oath. Nehemiah goes a step further. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and empty. He essentially is saying, you bring a curse upon yourself if you are not going to honor what you have said. You have assented the affirmative to doing 
these things, making these reparations. You have now sworn an oath before the assembly, before God, before the priests, before me to do these things. If you do not, may God shake you out. If you have a study Bible, there, you can look down at the bottom and see some of the notes. And it says, in ancient times, people often carried their personal belongings in the folds of their clothing. What they owned, they would be in the folds of their clothing. And so it essentially served as pockets for them. And Nehemiah's symbolic act meant to show the nation that if they disobeyed God, he would shake out them as a garment, that they would have nothing of value left after Yahweh was finished judging them. And so may a curse come upon them. But it says at the end of verse 13, and all the assembly that was there said, Amen. When we say Amen, it's in a sense of saying, So be it. Let it be done as it has been expressed. Same as we say today when we say Amen, you're giving assent to what has been proclaimed to God, to Christ. And so all the assembly there affirms what has taken place. They said, so be it, let it be done. And they praised the Lord. Great shouts of praise because they recognize that justice has been done, that God has provided for them, that the predicament that they were in now has been changed. What was promised was done. And as we read God's word, there's many times we read the exact opposite as we looked at some of those passages. But here we see in Nehemiah the obedience of the people and the faithful servant Nehemiah is. And he goes on to add these things in verses 14 to 19. He, he gives personal conduct, personal example of how he, as leader acted in such a way to be a blessing to them and not a curse. To not be like former governors before him who used their office as a means to get ahead, but would use his office as a means to be a blessing. A good leader leads by example with proper conduct. And so verses 14 to 19 Moreover, from the time that, it was, that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people. They took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall. We acquired no land, and my, all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox, six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, 
because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. It is evident that Nehemiah wasn't using his status as a way to get ahead. But it also suggests that his role as a cupbearer for the king allowed him the opportunity to do this as well. That he's able to provide all of these things, that he doesn't take the allowance. And governors were allowed to exact a toll from the people in order to pay for their, their office. They would take, here it says, they would take 40 shekels a day. Former governors would take that. And not just the 40 shekels, but they also would take food and wine. They were paid not just with money, but also with items of need for daily sustenance from the people. And former governors were harsh in this, laid heavy burdens on the people, taking that ration. And not just the governors were doing this, but it also says that their servants as well would lord it over the people. They were better, the servants of the governor were better off, were more well off as they lorded it over the people. But it all comes back to this thing of walking in the fear of our God. Nehemiah stated, I do this because of the fear of God. I want him to be pleased with me. I want him. I don't do it for personal reward, for personal gain. I do it because I want to live my life for Christ. In Matthew 6, 19-21, it tells us these things. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and seal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Nehemiah understood that principle. It wasn't about himself. It wasn't about his status. It wasn't about getting ahead. But it was about displaying, even before Christ's coming, displaying the characteristics of a man who is devoted to God, who recognizes that to fear God changes his behavior before men to show them that God has set us apart for a greater work, for a greater thing. It says he persevered in the work on the wall. He acquired no land. Many would have... As was stated before, as governors, they would exact tolls. They would lend money. And when you can't lend money and pay back, they would acquire the land, and then they would do that. He says, I didn't do any of those things. I wasn't a hypocrite in how I ruled for the 12 years as governor of the people of Israel there in Jerusalem. My servants served as well. They didn't lord it over the people, but they served right alongside of them, as well as him. His status didn't mean that he wasn't to share in the work. A good leader takes part in the work at hand. He goes with his people. He doesn't stay behind. 
says, There were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came from the nations that were around us. And he was able to feed them out of his own expense, out of his own pocket, without requiring the customary money from the people. I believe, even as Pastor Scott has reminded us in Matthew 6 later on, it says, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things would be added unto you. Nehemiah understood, God owns all of this. I'm working for the Lord. He says, Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. Remember me, O God. What does this mean for us in closing? What can we take away from the example of Nehemiah and other people? For leaders, the ability to listen, to take counsel, to take a step back, to regard what God has said to respond rightly in the situation, not to be led by anger, but to be led by wisdom and knowledge, to lead by example of being selfless, not selfish, to be like Christ, as is talked about in Philippians 2. He who took on flesh became like man, yet was without sin, who, though he was God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself. He was a servant. As followers to the people that were being led by Nehemiah to be set apart in our speech and our conduct, to represent Christ well, to be walking in fear, not fear of dread, of judgment. One commentator mentioned it more in the terms of a son or daughter and father situation. You think back about your own kids with you or when you were as a kid with your parents. He wanted to please your parents. He wanted them to be happy. You didn't want them to be sad. Sometimes when you made a mistake and you did something was wrong, you can see the anger. I know my can be accused of being angry at some of the things my daughter has said, but remembering back on my time, it wasn't when I made my dad angry that was the worst. The most heart-wrenching thing that one of my parents could say to me that bothered me the most wasn't I am angry or I'm mad at your behavior, but it was the word, I'm disappointed in you. Because they love you. They know you. They want what's best for you. And they aren't trying to harm you or hurt you. They're trying to guide you. The same is for God. He doesn't want to harm you or hurt you. He wants to love you and bless you and keep you and see you fulfilling your purpose that he has created each and every one of us for. We are the temple of the living God, 2 Corinthians 6. 
And God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst. Be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. You shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Paul to the Corinthian church. Paul to us. So my question this morning as we close, are you following the way of the world or are you walking in the fear of our God? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. You are beautiful. You are majestic. You are holy. There is no one like you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you have called us out of the darkness and into your marvelous light. That we are called your sons and daughters. That we have been separated from the world, Father. And today we come before you and pray that you would keep us. Give us the strength to live differently than the world, Father. Some here might need to come before you and Pray a prayer of forgiveness because we have not done that. To hear your words this morning and repent. To turn back from the things that are evil and turn to you, O God, who is good. Some of us might need encouragement to continue on despite discouraging times and discouraging circumstances when we feel all is lost, when we don't know where to turn, where we have sold all that we have and yet still are in desperate need. Lord, you hear, you provide, you bless. We pray that it would be that our hearts are right before you. For we know that we suffer the consequences of our actions. Thank you that you are gracious and merciful. And you pray that you would go before us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would stand for the, the benediction this morning. In First Timothy, I'll leave you with this. It says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which... You made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who is his testimony. Who before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.